I want to invite you tonight to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 22. Once you've located that place, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Please be seated. If you've been paying much attention over the last few weeks as we've looked in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has mentioned a lot that the disciples seem to be slow to get it. He's talked a lot about how they still don't see, they still don't understand. He even at one point says, are, are you hard-hearted? Mark even tells us when Jesus did the miracle of feeding the people with the loaves and fishes, they didn't, they didn't get the point that they should have gotten through that. They failed to understand the message that should have come through through Jesus' actions. So, so they've been kind of slow to understand the truth about Jesus and what He's all about. And what we see in this section of verses that we just read is, again, they're not on the same page with Jesus. They're thinking one thing. He's thinking something else. They're they're getting closer, but they still aren't there yet. They still don't get it. Still don't understand. All that Jesus is and all that He came to do, they still don't really understand. And I want to say to us as a church that in order to make any progress, we're going to have to be on the same page with Jesus. Does that make sense to you? I mean, we we can't just be reading from the same book. We got to be on the same page. 
Our, our mindset has to be his mindset. Our plans have to be his plans. Our mission has to be his mission. And as long as we're on a different page from Jesus, we're not going to accomplish much. We need very much to make sure we get on the same page with the Lord Jesus. Know who He is and what He's about so that we can understand what we're supposed to be about. Well, I think tonight the verses we're going to look at will help us to begin to get a picture of what it means to be on the same page with Jesus. The first thing I'd want you to notice is in verses 22 to 26, Jesus heals a blind man. And there's something unique about this. This is a two-stage healing. Did you see it? In verses 22, they bring a man to Jesus and they beg Jesus to touch him. We've seen a lot of other miracles that basically happen the same way. But here's where it gets different. In verse 23, Jesus takes the man away from the crowd. He spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him. We've seen him do that too. He did that to the deaf man just a couple of stories ago. And after he touched him, he asked the man if he saw anything. Verse 24, he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. In other words, well, I can see something. But it, it's not clear. I, I have sight to some extent, but, but everything's blurry. I, I'm not seeing clearly. He could see more than he had before, but he still didn't see reality. And then Jesus lays his hands on him again, and he opens his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Alright, so think with me. Jesus lays his hands on this man once. He can see, but everything's fuzzy, it's not clear. Then he lays his hands on him again. And all of a sudden now he can see clearly. Here's my question. Why couldn't Jesus have healed this man the first time? Completely, instead of just partially. He could have. There's a reason this miracle is given to us in two stages. There's a reason Mark has put this miracle in the story where it is. Because what Jesus did to this man, healing him in two stages, healing his sight in two stages, Jesus is giving a picture of the disciples and what's happening with them. They're starting to see. But they're still just at stage one. Everything's fuzzy. They can see a little bit. But there's going to have to be another touch from Jesus before they're going to get, get the picture clearly. Are you with me? So this miracle pictures what's going on in the thought processes of his disciples. He comes to them, and up to this point, they're, they're, they're beginning to see, but they, they still don't get it. They're like this man after Jesus touched him the first time. 
something else is going to have to happen before they're going to really see clearly. Now, I want you to see what it is. As we move into the next section of this scripture, we're going to see both stages of coming to really understand Jesus and what He's about. And stage one is this. Understanding Jesus' identity. Understanding Jesus' identity. Verse 27. Jesus is with His disciples. They're going to Caesarea Philippi. And He asks in verse 27, Who do people say that I am? What's the public opinion about who Jesus is? Some say, well, there are those who believe you're John the Baptist. In other words, they believe that the spirit of John the Baptist has come back and that's what's enabled Jesus to do the things he's doing. It's John the Baptist who Herod had put to death. His spirit has come back and has taken over Jesus and that's how Jesus is doing what he's doing. Some say he's Elijah. We've talked before about how the prophet Micah says that one would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. A prophet would come before the Messiah who would announce, make known that the Messiah was coming, who would clear the way for the Messiah. We know that was John the Baptist. But some people thought that Jesus was this Elijah who had come to make the way for the Messiah. Some people said, no, he's just one of the prophets come back to speak to God's people. So there's all kind of different opinions about who Jesus is. Now Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Here's what he really wants to know. Jesus knew what the people thought of him. He's getting to where he wants to go now here in verse 29. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And he's absolutely right. Now, let's make sure we understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. We, we use this term a lot like it's Jesus' last name, but it's not. It's a title. It's not his name. Christ is the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, and it means anointed one. It's referring to someone who would be anointed as king. It's referring to the king promised in the Old Testament. The king who would be a descendant of David, who would come and establish God's people in their eternal kingdom, who would rule over them forever in days of prosperity and glory. God would be in their midst and the Messiah would rule over them and it would be glorious and wonderful. And this is what the people of God long for. This king who would come and set up the kingdom of God that he promised his old people in the Old Testament. And Peter says, you're that one. You're, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the king. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the promised one. The descendant of David who was to rule over the kingdom forever. And he's right. So we say, hallelujah. He finally gets it. No. He doesn't. He's at stage one. He, he sees a little bit. 
I mean, he's beginning to get a, a picture, but it's not clear. How do we know? Look what happens next. Verse 31, he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 32, he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus said, I'm going to be arrested by the religious elite, scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin council. They're going to torment me and kill me, and then I'll rise again on the third day. And Peter says, uh-uh. He rebuked Jesus. To me, it's hard for me to even say that. He rebuked Jesus. You don't rebuke God, but Peter rebukes him. But before we're too hard on him, you've got to understand something. The idea of a crucified Messiah was nowhere in Jewish thought. Although the Old Testament points to it, it never would have dawned on them that the one who was coming to be the king and establish the kingdom was going to suffer and die. How could he be the king if he's dead? There was no room in Jewish religious thought for a crucified Messiah, for a suffering Messiah. So Peter's thinking about the kingdom of God. I mean, we're finally going to see the kingdom. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to establish Israel as the dominant nation in the world. Everything's going to be glorious. God's people are going to be in prosperity. Once again, all the promises in the scripture are finally going to come to pass where we're going to have safety and we're going to have abundance and we're going to be secure. We're going to enjoy peace and the blessings of God. They're thinking, finally, this is who you are. This is what you've come to do. So when Jesus goes down this detour of suffering and death and resurrection, Peter's like, no, 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 no. That, that's not how this is supposed to work. That's not how this is supposed to work. So you think when Peter says, you're the Christ, that was the general consensus among the disciples. We think they finally get it. But then in the very next breath, we see, Jesus, we see Peter rebuking Jesus, and we see, well, maybe he doesn't quite get it yet. He doesn't really fully understand yet. He knows something about Jesus' identity. Stage one in really understanding Jesus is understanding His identity. But stage two, which is necessary to see clearly, is to understand Jesus' mission. Understanding Jesus' mission. You remember I told you this healing of this blind man gives us a picture of, what, of what's going on with these disciples. They're coming to see, stage one, they got the Christ, they got that part right, but they still haven't gotten to stage two where they understand His mission. They're still in the dark. You and I know His mission. His mission, what does He say? I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. John 5, 24. He came to die. 
for the sins of mankind so that we could have eternal life in the presence of God. Let me say it this way, in a way Jews would understand. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. But the only way the kingdom of God could ever be established and we be fit to dwell in it is for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be clothed in the righteousness of God. You understand? Suppose God has the, the, the perfect kingdom of God. You and I aren't fit to be in it. You understand? We would be shut out because of our wickedness. Read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches one primary lesson. None of us are good enough to be God's special people on our own. We fail constantly. What Jesus came to do was to die so that through His sacrifice we could be forgiven. He came to live a perfect life so that through His life we could receive His righteousness. He came to make us people fit for the kingdom of God. Did He come to establish that kingdom that was promised? Absolutely. Is He that king? Absolutely. But in order for that kingdom to be established and be all that God has promised it to be, our sin has to be dealt with. You understand? The obstacle for Israel and the people was not Rome. They thought what kept them from being in the kingdom, they thought what kept the kingdom of God from being reality was Rome, was their enemy. That's not what it was at all. It's their sin that kept them from enjoying the kingdom of God. Jesus came to deal with their sin so that the kingdom of God could be a reality. Is, is this making sense at all? For the kingdom of God to be a reality, Jesus has to go to the cross. And here's the, here's the, here's the point of this whole sermon. The road to the kingdom goes through Calvary. You understand? The road to the kingdom goes through Calvary. That's why Jesus responds to Peter the way He did. In verse 33, turning and seeing His disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind Me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. One minute Peter is confessing Jesus is the Christ, the next minute, Jesus is calling him Satan. Why would he call him Satan? Because he was opposing God's agenda. What was God's agenda for Jesus? The cross. God sent his son to die. That's God's agenda. So when Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to the cross, you're, you're not going to die, what's he doing? He's opposing God's agenda. He's aligning himself with Satan. Because Can I tell you something? Satan doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. 
We think, oh, Satan was so excited when Jesus died. Look at me. No, no. Satan's no fool. That's why if you ever watched the movie The Passion of the Christ, the one Mel Gibson did 20-something years ago or whatever, you remember that movie? If you remember, there's a scene when Jesus is put on the cross where Satan actually is on his knees in grief. He's not glad that the Son of God has gone to the cross because he understands what that means. So Peter's aligned himself with the agenda of Satan because he doesn't want Jesus to go and die. That's what I mean when I say he doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand that there's not a crown without a cross. There's no kingdom without Calvary. The promises of God come to pass only as the Son of God goes and dies for the sins of God's people. That's the only way it can happen. He tells Peter, you're setting your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. Now, I want us to think for just a minute about what that means for you and for me as a church. The road to the kingdom goes through Calvary. To understand Jesus, who He really is, and His mission, to, to, to see clearly. Not like the disciples are at this point where they got part of the picture. They know He's a Christ, but they still don't get it. We have to get both parts of this picture. Both stages we have to understand His identity and understand His mission. When would they finally get it? When would the second stage of this sight finally come to them when they could see clearly? Anybody want to take a guess? Huh? You got it. After the resurrection. Then they would understand. Then they would see clearly. Then they would see clearly. So to be on the same page as Jesus means your agenda is the cross. It means we are united in Jesus in this understanding that the road to the kingdom goes through Calvary. That's the page Jesus is on. How, how do we stay on the same page with Jesus? It's real simple. Keep the cross central. Keep the cross central. We talked some last Sunday night about trying to position ourselves for the future. And what some things we might need to try to do in order to better position ourselves to reach a new generation, to establish ourselves in a place where we can move into the future. But there's one thing that must never change. 
Our message is the cross. You understand? Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Our message is the cross. If we shrivel up and die numerically, because all we're going to preach is the Scripture and the cross of Jesus, so be it. But we can't change our message. Why? Because when you start preaching self-help and pop psychology and all this other stuff, you're, getting, you're not on the same page with Jesus anymore. Because Jesus is about the kingdom and the road to the kingdom goes through the cross. There is no entrance into the kingdom without the cross. If we're going to get anybody into God's kingdom, we got to take them through the cross. Are you with me? They got to come face to face with Calvary and their sin and the crucified risen Savior. That's the only way that ever happens. So no matter what else may need to be adjusted and adapted to, to make us position ourselves for the future. The cross still remains the center of who we are and what we preach and what we're about and what we're calling people to is a crucified life. To lay down self and take up the mantle of the cross. So for you and I, what it means for us to stay on the same page with Jesus is that we have to keep the cross at the center. Do we look for the kingdom? Absolutely. Do we celebrate the joy we have in Jesus? Absolutely. We look for the kingdom. We pray for the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. We don't ignore the kingdom. That's where we're going. That's what we're all about. But we understand without the cross there is no kingdom. So we pray for the kingdom. We wait for the kingdom. We work for the kingdom. All the while keeping the cross in the center. Keeping the cross at the heartbeat of what we are and what we do. Because let me tell you something. You can build a crowd without preaching the cross. It's easier to build a crowd if you don't preach the cross. But you won't build the kingdom if you don't preach the cross. You're just building a crowd. And how many of you know that's not success for the church of Jesus? Just drawing a crowd does not equal success. Success is bringing people face to face with the cross where they see their sin and they see their Savior and they are forever changed by His grace. That's success. But that doesn't happen if we abandon the cross as the heartbeat of all we do. What was the problem with the disciples? Why did Jesus not want them to tell people He was the Christ? Because he knew they didn't get it. He knew they didn't understand yet. 
if they go out talking about Jesus is the Christ, telling everybody He's the Christ, if they do that before the resurrection, before they really understand, then they're not given a clear picture. Are you understanding? They're not given the whole story because they don't know it yet. That's why He tells all these He heals, be quiet. Because He doesn't want them spreading this news and people thinking He's here and He's going to overthrow Rome. And John chapter 5, Jesus... Uh, I think it's John 5, it may not be, but in the book of John, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they were going to try to take Him and make Him king by force. They said, this has got to be the Messiah, so they're going to take Him and take Him to Jerusalem and try to make Him king. What did Jesus do? He withdrew from them up into a mountain by Himself. Why? Because that's not the way the kingdom comes. He had to go to the cross. And if we're going to be on the same page as Jesus, we have to focus on the message of the cross. Because here's the bottom line. That's the hope for all mankind. The hope for the world is the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word.